There is a story that has been pretty wild from the start, and it has just become wilder. Is that what it would become? If it was wild, is it now wilder? It's something. And we are going to examine it from a number of different ways today on the show. We're going to be joined by Dr. Dana Carroll. And Dr. Carroll is with the University of Utah School of Medicine. Dr. Carroll is just back from a bit of a business trip to Hong Kong, where last week Dr. Carroll sat in a room as a man named Dr. Huh stood at the front of that room and explained what he had just done. Do you know the story yet? Dr. Huh had used CRISPR, which is a gene-editing technique, and had apparently taken the embryos of what would eventually be two twins and had done some work on them, had made some changes to them. And then, of course, last week we had the announcement that Dr. Ha had been responsible for what he felt was creating two CRISPR babies, the first two. And in that room, as that announcement happened, was Dr. Carroll. We're going to hear from him in about a half hour. He is a renowned geneticist, and he is somebody who can kind of take us through what all of this is, because CRISPR is not the easiest thing to understand. I guess if we were to put it in its simplest form, it would be like taking a pair of scissors... And going in and being able to splice out little bits of genetic material. And that sounds great. Sounds very futuristic. But, hey, if there was something that you didn't like, man, I'm always getting a hangnail on my left thumb. Could we go in and and trim that out so that the skin's a little tougher on my left thumb? That's the kind of stuff that you have to wonder if it's out there. Now, we are at a very basic stage. But the concern is we've gone from, hey, here's a thing called CRISPR. We're looking at what potential it may have, and we're doing a lot of tests. We're doing a lot of research, and oh, look, two babies. There's a disconnect there somewhere. So Dr. Carroll is going to help us to fill in some of the blanks in that disconnect and then take a look at what genomics can actually do because we have to go all the way back to the presidency of Bill Clinton, and they were announcing that they had mapped the human genome. Remember how long ago that was? You know what the neat story is about that? If you can think back to the announcement of then-U.S. President Bill Clinton standing up, saying they had mapped the human genome, it apparently actually wasn't true. There was some sort of private clinic that was also working on this, and that private clinic was kind of racing the government. And so what they did was they said, hey, you know what? Uh, We've mapped the genome and ta-da! And they did it before the private clinic. But the truth of the matter apparently was they were only about 75% through. They needed three more years. But in order to throw off that private clinic and keep them from having all of the fanfare, they decided to ta-da! Well before they actually could. And then you had the question of, well, what is this going to do? Is this going to change humans right away? We now know the map that makes up humans. They'd started with a fruit fly. Now we had a human being. Well, what would happen? 
Well, think about when Bill Clinton was president. It wasn't yesterday. It wasn't even in the last decade. It wasn't even in the last, well, we're going on about 20 years now, right? So where has all of the research been? Well, it's been happening. And now genomics is kind of gaining momentum again. And it certainly gained a place in the spotlight with Dr. Hunt last week. So again, we'll speak with a man who was in the room as that announcement was made, and then ask him to kind of break down where all of this sits. Because here's the concern I think we all need to have. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday on London Live. When the internet came to be, it just sort of happened. It just kind of filtered out. You went from being able to say, oh, that's kind of cool. Look, I can send a note to someone who lives in another country, and they get it instantly. Well, almost instantly. They had to go through the dial-up noises. Wow, that's that's really fascinating. Oh, look, I can look up information. I can I can read news online. I can play games against somebody else online. This is really neat. But it happened slowly and and very fragmented. The smart people quickly bought up all the domain names and then resold them for a lot of money. Other people who were even smarter did things that made them very wealthy very quickly. Most of us just kind of went, oh, this is neat. And now we carry a little computer around in our pockets called our phone. And we have the Internet at our disposal pretty much whenever we need it. But the regulations didn't come in. When you heard all of those stories about child pornography yesterday, do we have the same extent of child pornography if we don't have the Internet? I think you'd find a lot of law enforcement officials who say absolutely not. If you know a law enforcement official who deals with the internet and things like pornography, not just child pornography, ask them sometime, how much of the internet is probably porn? What do you think it would be? Anybody I talk with uses numbers like 70%, 80% of the internet is just porn. So we didn't do a very good job regulating that whole end of things because it exists, it's a part of daily life, but... It's not very regulated. There aren't a lot of rules that go around. And then I don't even want to get into the dark web and what goes on there. But in this instance, with genomics, do we need to take more of a regulatory posture? Because you're looking at, you know, science fiction type advances. Shouldn't we be a little concerned about some of those science fiction type advances? Maybe, maybe not. Of course we should. I mean, we don't know what these two babies are going to be like. We have no idea. They're just babies. They're basically a week old. We have no idea. They can go through some testing, but we probably won't know the real story until they've lived out their life story. And that's part of the problem, too, where if you are making changes to humans, what are the residual effects? Well, a lot of it would be, have we prevented a certain gene from being passed down? How are we going to know that? Well, when they have children. Well, how long is that going to take? Well, about 20, 30, 32, 33 years. And then who knows what we're at in terms of how many things have been created that we're still waiting to examine based on the next generation. I mean, this is a really, really interesting point that we're sitting at in terms of the power to do things like take little bits of genetic material and take them away. And maybe even rearrange some stuff and being able to say, yeah, okay, well, that's okay, but that's not. 
We can get rid of Huntington's, which we should if we can, but we shouldn't really be pushing to make someone bigger, stronger, higher, faster. We shouldn't do that. Where do you put the regulations down? And a lot of the scientists are probably pretty concerned right now about regulations, period. So that's a little bit of big picture background. We'll go into Dr. Hu's story in just a little while as to why he did this. And then, again, we'll talk with Dr. Carroll about it. We are also going to be in conversation with Annalise Strotman. She's the project manager for the Canadian Domestic Homicide Prevention Initiative with vulnerable populations. Some new statistics came out today. Here we are on the anniversary of the Montreal Massacre, and we get some pretty staggering statistics dealing with women who would be in those vulnerable populations. They would be indigenous populations. They would be immigrant and refugee populations. They would be northern populations or rural and remote ones, or also children who wind up being killed in the context of domestic violence. Those are all of the things that have gone into a new survey, and they have found that there are 418 cases of domestic homicide involving 476 victims, and they took place in Canada between 2010 and 2015. That's a really small period of time for that many homicides to fall into those categories. So we'll talk about that before the end of London Live as well. Up next, why don't we begin with a really good news story? That's what we'll do next. We're going to talk about an initiative that you can help out with and you can actually find this weekend. And it will be looking to put some smiles on some faces at this time of year. So we'll start off with a nice happy story, then we'll get really technical, and then we're going to deal with a story that we need to deal with concerning domestic homicide and victims in pretty vulnerable spots. It's Thursday, still snowing, take it easy on the roads, we'll update you on conditions. We've had some really wild traffic incidents already today so do be careful we had somebody leave the road around the first mcdonald's ever in canada you know that's the one at oxford and wonderland right well somebody kind of went toward the mcdonald's so that was a little frightening do take it easy if you are driving around because conditions could be slick we're getting that very fine type snow i you know what we need to do we need to incorporate all of the Inuit words for snow because I believe they have 40 words to describe snow because the snow that's falling right now needs a description. If we were able to say this is the kind of snow, you would say, oh, that's the stuff that gets kind of hard packed on the ground and makes it really slippery right away. Whereas last night we had the stuff that was falling that was like styrofoam. We don't have enough words for snow. We just have the one that's snowing. No, it's not. Each one brings about a different condition. So the stuff that's falling right now, that's the stuff that could make things slick on your drive home. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFP. Just got a note from Rob. We were just talking, if you missed it, off the start of the show about CRISPR. We're we're not necessarily going to be talking about CRISPR necessarily, but we're going to look more at genomics, and we're going to do it with somebody who is very much in the know to the point he was in the room when Dr. Huh, who talked about developing two CRISPR babies, made his presentation last week. So he joins us in about 20 minutes from now, but got a note from Rob saying, here is one person who is thankful for this kind of research. He says, my cancer treatment targets the mismatched gene and tells it to start working, and my tumor has shrunk 
33.8% in a year. It's because of that mapping that immunotherapy is available. That's why I'm actually excited about CRISPR. This technology can be developed so future generations do not have to have what I have, which is Lynch syndrome, which increases the risk of certain cancers, colon cancer, for example, as much as 80%. This is a good thing. So there you see the good side of that research. And that's why this becomes, in a way, a really happy time and, in a way, a really uncertain time. Because that's the good stuff you can do. But what else can you do? What can you do to the human body? You know what we've always done? We've always done it the natural way. You know, natural selection has always done it the natural way. Over generations and generations, we see little changes and we see good things happening. But when you're dealing with making your body better, sometimes it is good to do it the natural way. And our two guests who have joined us in studio know exactly what that is all about. Because we are, uh, we are able to go out and do things like exercise and eat well. And the more we know, the better we can be. Joining us right now, we have Peter and we have Jess from The Rep Room London. Welcome to London Live. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Great to have you here. Now, we're not just here to talk about working out, although we can probably ask you a couple of questions about that. You, Unfortunately, this is radio. We've got two people who are in fantastic shape. You guys look great. You're very kind. Thank you. Thank you. you. <laughs> is it easy to look like you do? It's, I don't know if it's easy. It's more of a, a habit and a routine, and we've been uh, pretty fortunate to be able to incorporate that into our lives on a on a regular basis. Well, you are also incorporating a little something else around the holidays. And it is going to play itself out not just this weekend, but this weekend becomes a big part of, a, a, do we call it a, an event that lasts through almost till Christmas? Yeah, so uh, we're really excited to be working with a couple of incredible businesses here in London. London Sorts for Sports, uh, Edgar and Joe's uh, Cafe over on Horton and Wellington as we raise awareness, and collect toys for the Children's Health Foundation. Okay, and how are you going about doing that? Well, we're going to be at Source for Sports this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, uh, accepting toy donations, new unwrapped toys to be donated to the Children's Health Foundation. And for anybody who comes on down and brings a toy, we're going to enter them in for a draw to win one of our January prize packages. So right about the time we're looking around and going, man, I haven't been exercising because getting up in the morning is a little tough when it's still dark outside. That's about the time we need one of those. Exactly right. It's a great time to kickstart. And uh, what, we're, uh, what we're doing right now is anybody who wants to take advantage of the January program can come and join classes in December and uh, get a head start on that uh, that holiday uh, weight gain that we all seem to suffer from. Fantastic. Peter and Jess joining us from the rep room. So what do we need to know in terms of time? Obviously, bring down toys. Do you want them wrapped, unwrapped? Um, so we want them, We want the toys unwrapped. Uh, Saturday, we will be at Source for Sports between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. And then Sunday, we're going to be there from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Okay. And bring them down in there, and you can enjoy a hot coffee and... Enjoy a hot coffee, thanks to uh, Edgar and Joe's Cafe. Yeah. Fantastic. And in terms of, of the toys you're looking to collect, any specific age range, anything like that? So the Children's Health Foundation actually has a list on their website of things that they would like to have. Um, and it ranges, you know, the, the forgotten ages are always those tweens and older kids. 
So I mean activities, because keep in mind, these are going for children who are stuck in hospital and, you know, parents either sometimes don't have the either the time or the, the means by which to provide them gifts at this time of year. So we're going to try and help them out and things that can keep them entertained and, and kind of help pass the time while they're, they're stuck. And that would be at Source for Sports, 10 to 3 Saturday, 12 to 3 on Sunday. If someone can't make it out this weekend, let's say they're headed away somewhere, can we still drop them off in another way? Absolutely. So we are accepting toys at the rep room until December 22nd. Okay. And where do we find you at the rep room? We are at 1615 North Rutledge Park. Okay. Up in Hyde Park. Yeah, it's on Hyde Park. It's uh, just on the west side of Hyde Park, just a little bit north of Gainesborough. Fantastic. Well, thanks for doing this. What made you guys want to want to do this? We've got three kids ourselves. And we can only imagine what it must be like to spend time in the hospital. And um, just just the thought of, of those kids going through that, we can really kind of identify with what they're going through and want to do what we can to help make uh, things a little bit easier. Fantastic. Jess and Peter with us from the rep room. Okay, since you're here and before we let you go, if somebody is thinking, okay, how do I put that first foot forward to getting into shape or to getting more active, to looking like the two of you do, what do they do? <laughs> The best, the best way to start is to do something. Something is infinitely better than nothing, and that's the first thing. Uh, maybe go for a little walk, make five minutes in the day, improve your nutrition in some way by adding some healthy food, and take that first step. And like I say, something is infinitely better than nothing, and the perfect thing is only marginally better. So don't try and go for the perfect thing right out the gate. Good stuff. And that sounds pretty easy. Walking and eating, you've mentioned. We can do that. Absolutely. We, could, we could get that done. Absolutely. We want and to start slow and build from there. Then you build on that and, hey, look what can happen. 10 to 3 on Saturday, 12 to 3 on Sunday at Source for Sports. If you can drop off a toy, and again, you can visit the Children's Health Foundation website, get some ideas on the kinds of things that they are looking for. Peter, Jess, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. We have coming up. A doctor from Utah who was in Hong Kong just about a week ago when a pretty interesting announcement was being made about babies who had had their genetic material, according to this doctor, altered. And they have now been born. And we're going to look at this in two parts. We'll look at that particular story, and then we'll look at where genomics is going and and what the power is at the moment. How far can scientists go right now? Because, as we said, you go back to when the mapping of the human genome was announced. Bill Clinton was the president of the United States basically making the announcement. So we're talking a couple of decades, but at the same time, Things have been kind of quiet and slow moving since then. And then all of a sudden, two babies are born. And the next thing you know, this becomes headline news absolutely everywhere. And we are also going to talk about a pretty concerning piece of information that came out today on the anniversary of the Montreal Massacre. And that is the number of domestic homicides that have taken place in Canada in a pretty short period of time. Think about 2010 to 2015. We're talking about cases of domestic homicide that involve victims who would be in what you would call vulnerable populations. So these are not even complete numbers of homicides. This is just from vulnerable populations. So we've got roughly five, six-year span. How many do you think? Try 418. 
That's a big number, and we're going to find out why a little later on on London Live. Up next, Jacqueline LaBelle will have news. We'll have an update on what the forecast is looking like carrying through this afternoon. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Some news from Global News in Toronto that a building that houses three high schools is in lockdown. Police said a person was spotted with a gun inside this morning and they're still on lockdown right now. No gunshots were fired. No injuries have been reported, but that's something we'll definitely pay attention to. And that again is the Western Technical Commercial School at Bloor Street West and Runnymede Road in High Park in Toronto. So that's coming from Global News Toronto. Got a uh, tweet from Andy, and Andy said uh, our minds are thinking alike because he says he described last night's snow as that styrofoam snow. He says his wife looked at him like he had a second head, but it's true. We need more words for snow because we need to be able to describe it a little bit better. And I looked it up, and Franz Bose was an anthropologist, and he was basically going through northern Canada, going through Baffin Island, and I think he was the first one to realize that Inuit culture had more than one word for snow. We just use the one. We have kind of sleet, right? But that's that's kind of the rain-snow mix. Snain, but that's that's still not getting it because there are so many different kinds of actual snow. The stuff that's falling right now is so fine and grainy. I, the English language is probably too far gone to just say, hey, here's 40 new words that we need to learn. I don't think we could do that. This is the language that gives us through, trough, and though. Spell those ones out. Take a look at those. Our language is a mess. So incorporating 40 more words, I don't know. But Franz Bose said, he actually said there are more than 40 words for snow in Inuit culture. There are actually, he counted 53, and 70 words for ice. I don't know if we need that. But it would be telling if we could say, here's the snow that is falling. You would think, okay, that's what the drive home, drive home is going to be like right now. Because it's, it's getting kind of slick and slippery because the stuff is so fine. We need that. Or it's kind of cool to go out when the styrofoam stuff is falling, you know? it's I don't know what the temperature has to be doing in order to get there, but it was doing it last night. We had the styrofoam stuff falling. By the way, we did get a question yesterday that we looked into regarding ambulances and merging. You know what we heard yesterday? If you missed this on London Live, we were told that daily ambulance drivers in Middlesex, London, have difficulty getting past drivers, that they're not pulling over daily. Really? And we had a question that came in from Al, and Al's question was, if you're kind of stopped at an intersection and you move for an ambulance to get by and an accident occurs, who's at fault? And the answer that we actually got was, well, they wouldn't be able to give a general rule of thumb because in that case, you would have to take a look at the entire situation. Each one would be an individual situation. So that is the answer that we got. Up next, we are going to talk about answers that we may not get for 20 to 30 years. We're going to talk about the CRISPR babies from China. And actually, the latest on Dr. Huh. The guy who apparently engineered these two children. And then we're going to talk with somebody who was in the room for the presentation in Hong Kong. And we're going to talk about human genetics and where we actually sit. What can we do? And what should we be doing? 
This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. CRISPR babies. What are those? Like a, a Rice Krispie treat? Is that what that is? It kind of takes away from what it actually is. What it actually is, some people would call it exciting. Others might call it worrying. We have a Chinese scientist. His name is Dr. Hu. And he has come out and said that he has created two babies making use of CRISPR, which is a really interesting technique. And if you talk with anybody who is dealing with cancer, if you talk with anybody who is dealing with muscular dystrophy, if you talk with anyone who is dealing with Huntington's disease or anything like that, then this is something that brings a whole lot of hope. This is something that you think may one day take away things like muscular dystrophy, may one day take away things like Huntington's disease is something that can be used in treating cancer. At the same time, you can make some other claims. You could make CRISPR work in many other applications. And that becomes one of the big concerns. Based on last week's announcement by Dr. Hu in China, who essentially was dealing with a man who wanted to have children But he was HIV positive. And so CRISPR was apparently used. And again, it's difficult to know whether it actually was. He says it was. But it's difficult to know whether it actually was. It was difficult to know at the time of this announcement how he made use of it. All those sorts of things. But that's what he was aiming to do is help to create two babies, one baby. He had a couple of embryos. Twins ultimately were born. And the idea was to help them out because their father was HIV positive to prevent them from being HIV positive. So that was the goal. One was apparently born with the, I guess, the, the resistance to HIV. The other apparently was not. And now, even just today, we had a story that came out across a number of different networks that said Dr. Ha has gone missing and they don't know where he is. So that all of a sudden is a little concerning. And the other thing that ties into this is what was Dr. Ha's motivation? Was it to actually do a favor for a father or was it to say, here's what I can do and for the low, low cost of uh, how much do you have there? How much do you have in your bank account? Oh, you have millions? Yeah, okay, let's talk. Come on into this room right here. Let's talk about what we can do for you and your future offspring. Was it that? Is that what he was doing? Our next guest got up close and personal with Dr. Huh. And this story, again, is taking on all new forms as the minutes tick by. Again, they can't seem to find Dr. Hu at the moment, but he was in Hong Kong last week and he was making a presentation to a room full of medical professionals. And joining us right now is one of those medical professionals, a distinguished professor in the Department of Biochemistry at one of the coolest named schools on Twitter, 
the U of U, the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Dana Carroll. Dr. Carroll, thank you so much for being here today. Maybe let's start with this. What can you tell us about Dr. Hu's presentation from last week? I can tell you that I was at the international summit in Hong Kong where Dr. made his presentation about editing two embryos and implanting them into uh, a mother and give, ultimately giving birth to two girl babies, um, which he claimed uh, had modifications in their genome that, uh, that he produced. And when, when the news came out just a few days ahead of the conference itself, people were stunned, I would say. I think uh, almost nobody had any inkling that this was about to happen. And I think everybody, pretty much everybody at the conference thought that it was much too early to be doing uh, experiments, doing treatments like this with the CRISPR technology. So uh, the announcement just before the conference that Dr. He had had uh, made these modifications and children had been born with the genome modifications, it really changed the tenor of the meeting uh, because everybody was anticipating his presentation and uh, sort of talking about uh, how this how this might have an impact on CRISPR research overall. So describe what it was like being in that room. You're there with so many people who've done so much work, and all of a sudden someone, it sounds like, has skipped a few steps saying, yeah, you know, all the work that you've been doing, we're just going to do this with a human right now. So what was that like? Well, it was uh, <laughs> it was pretty distracting, um, because uh, although I think pretty much everybody in the room would have told you that at some point this would this would be done, that there would be a legitimate reason for trying to make a change in someone's someone's genome in in order to prevent a really devastating disease. I think nobody thought the technology was quite ready for it. And one of the things that was really puzzling was why Dr. He chose the gene that he targeted, because he wasn't actually preventing a devastating disease. What he was trying to do was protect these children against infection by HIV. Right, because and we had talked... there are other ways to... Pre- no, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, there are other ways to protect people from HIV infection, and there are quite effective treatments once someone is infected. So this just didn't seem like a a good enough medical justification to go ahead and do something that we all believe uh, still has a lot of risks involved with it. We're talking with Dr. Dana Carroll, Distinguished Professor in the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Utah School of Medicine, and we are looking at Dr. He and his announcement last week that he had, as the headlines said it, he had 
helped to create two CRISPR babies. And now we get more in behind the story as to what was playing out. In terms of of what he tried to do, we talked coming into the segment about the father of these children apparently being HIV positive, and we hear that Dr. He had had manipulated or had dealt with something called the germline. What is the germline? Well, the, the germline uh, means the, the chromosomes that you're going to pass on to your children. So uh, the germline refers to, in a man, uh, the, the cells that are ultimately going to lead to the production of sperm, and in a woman, the cells that are ultimately going to lead to the production of eggs. And the way these experiments were done was manipulating genes in the embryo, the human embryo, right after fertilization. So at this time, the human embryo consists of one cell. It has chromosomes from dad's sperm. It has chromosomes from mom's egg, but just in one cell. And so making a genetic modification in that cell will result in that modification being present in all of the cells of the body of the child that eventually is born. Is that clear? Yeah, that's very clear. And it sounds it sounds sci or it sounds science fiction. It, it sounds maybe to some people a, a little frightening that you would be able to do that. It also sounds absolutely fascinating. And it sounds in that way that it might be easier than it probably is. If you look at maybe concerns that you may have over doing it, what are some of the concerns that you look at? Well, one one concern is what's the efficiency of making the modification that you're trying to make? Another is while you're making this particular modification using the CRISPR technology, are some other are you causing some other changes in uh, the chromosomes of this embryo so that you're possibly doing what you're trying to do, but at the same time making maybe you're making mutations in other genes that you weren't intending to modify, and uh, it's hard to predict what the consequences would be from those other changes. Dr. Carroll, if we're to try and visualize what is happening, how close are we to think that this is a big pair of scissors, or I guess a little tiny pair of scissors, going in and and making cuts and then sewing things back together? Well, our scissors are pretty good. (laughs) So uh, the the CRISPR technology is, is capable of making uh, mod- modifications in chromosomes uh, with pretty high efficiency. The problem is that the CRISPRs, the, the, sorry, the scissors don't always cut just where you want them to cut. And if they're cutting someplace else, then the uh, the the modifications may have effects that you weren't intending. As someone who has spent so much time. On genomics, if you look at, at kind of the human element in this, in that you've had a lot of researchers dealing with this, taking a look at, at maybe how it should play out, trying to make sure that everything falls in line, and, and then all of a sudden somebody gets involved who just says, I'm just going to do this, and there have been thoughts that maybe there were financial reasons that he was hoping to do this for. How does that make you react? Well, 
Well, my reaction was that it, it was very irresponsible um, that the technology really hadn't been worked out, uh, perfected to the extent that this was really an okay thing to do. So irresponsible was the first thing that came to mind, and that's the word that the organizing committee at the, at the summit meeting also used. We just thought he was way out ahead of what was legitimate. And there was a fear that his having done this would either seem to permit other people to go ahead and do it again uh, without complete control over the technology, or that it would stimulate uh, regulators to come down hard on all research around CRISPR, uh, most of it legitimate, and it would set back the, uh, the development of genuine therapies. Well, Dr. Carroll, if we could stop you there, if you don't mind hanging on, we have news coming up with Jacqueline LaBelle, and then maybe we can get into some of what genomics is doing now. We'll get away from the Dr. Huss story a little bit and just look at maybe if you had hopes and dreams for what you could do for humans genetically what they would be. We'll do that after news. Did get a note from Nancy, and Nancy said, did you see that the doctor you have been talking about has disappeared? We were mentioning that just quickly before we started talking with Dr. Carroll, and all we can tell you right now, and I don't know how Chinese tabloids work. I don't know how tabloidy Chinese tabloids are. Apple Daily and Ming Pao, which is a daily newspaper, in Hong Kong, they have reported that Dr. He, who is the scientist who apparently helped to create these two babies who are reported to be the first gene-edited babies in the world, how he's been placed under house arrest by his former employer, which is the Southern University of Science and Technology in Shenzhen in China, and he's been on unpaid leave since 2018. Now, uh, somebody else has denied these claims. Uh, there are other allegations that he has disappeared, that no one has seen him, and they point to other individuals from China, someone named Fan Bingbing. I don't know who that is, but Fan Bingbing vanished after attracting a whole lot of publish or public attention. So interesting story to follow from that angle, but... We're going to explore more on the genetic side after Jacqueline LaBelle and news. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. One thing to keep your ear on that is unfolding this afternoon is, of course, the meeting in Montreal that brings together Canada's federal, provincial, and territorial leaders. Apparently, Ontario Premier Doug Ford's office has said the Premier will walk away from this meeting if it doesn't include specific discussions on the carbon tax that the feds are looking at. So that's the latest there. We'll get the latest on other stories with Jacqueline LaBelle in just a moment, and then we'll continue our discussion about human genetics with Dr. Dana Carroll from the University of Utah School of Medicine. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Don't know that we'll have snow to shovel off the property tonight, but it is still coming down. We still do have snow that is falling, and so take it easy on your drive home. As it begins in, what, an hour, hour and a half, two hours? Okay, about two and a half, three hours. We're almost there. 
We have been talking about human genetics. We've been talking about gene-editing babies, which a doctor, a scientist in China, claims to have done last week. And we have been talking about this with the help of Dr. Dana Carroll, a distinguished professor in the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Utah School of Medicine. And we've gone through a little bit on Dr. He's presentation. He is the scientist from China who has said he has done this. He's created two babies who were edited genetically, that he's touched off the germline that will, according to what Dr. Carroll told us, prevent these babies, theoretically, from passing on certain genes. The father of these babies was HIV positive, and that's kind of where this all began. Now that doctor has reportedly gone missing. We don't know. Nobody can find him. Somebody said he was on house arrest. Somebody else said, no, that's not a thing. Well, let's take our human genetics conversation in a different direction. We welcome back to London Live Dr. Dana Carroll, again from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Dr. Carroll, we ended our last segment talking about concerns over what Dr. He had presented in China, what he says that he has done, and the fact that it could result in more people trying it or could result in regulations being brought in that could hamper some of the legitimate research that's being done. Well, there are a lot of uh, therapies being developed using the CRISPR technology and some of the other genome editing tools that would be applied to people who are already present, you know. And those therapies are called somatic therapies because you're actually treating a body rather than treating an embryo. And in those cases, uh, there are what look like very promising uses of CRISPR technology to treat diseases like uh, sickle cell disease or muscular dystrophy. Uh, there's uh, quite a list of diseases that people are working on. And these are applications where uh, only the person who's being treated would be affected and their children wouldn't be affected, other, other people wouldn't be affected. And the difference from the what we call the germline approach is that uh, there's this issue that only the person that's being treated would be affected, whereas if you treat an embryo early on and all the cells in the person that ultimately uh, develop from that embryo have the modifications, then those modifications are also passed down to all the children that that person would ultimately have because, because that person's sperm or that person's egg uh, carry, carry the modifications. So it's a, it's a more concerning use of the technology. At the same time, there are some legitimate uses. If you could prevent a, fa- a family from continuing to pass down uh, disease mutations, and you might think of Huntington's disease, or you might think of uh, cancer gene that have, have been in a family for generations, and now you have the capability of reversing those mutations so that the family no longer has the prospect of, of continuing to propagate those mutations, that would be, in my view, a legitimate use of the technology once we have it uh, under control so that it's, it's uh, safe and effective. We're talking with Dr. Dana Carroll, distinguished professor in the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Dr. Carroll, the technology, how quickly is it moving 
along where you go to work one day and all of a sudden, hey, look what we can do now. Is it a case like that? Well, not in my lab in particular, but, uh, you know, across the community that's working on this, the, the rate of development of a variety of tools out of the basic technology has been absolutely amazing. And it's been wonderful for me to watch watch what's happening. People are uh, looking at different applications and making modifications to the basic technology to do things uh, a little better, a little safer. Uh, and so it's it's been pretty amazing. At the same time, to to take any of these prospective therapies to the clinic is a slower process because. Uh, the safety and the efficacy have to be proven in short steps all the way along the way, uh, looking at what's happening in cells and culture, trying to do some of these modifications in uh, model organisms before you actually go to humans, and then going through uh, very deliberate trials in humans to show that the technology is safe. And in doing that, now we have someone who has kind of circumvented that system. Is it just a a hope and a a waiting process to see what comes out of Dr. He and what he has done? Yes, I would say the first thing that we would like to see is some independent analysis of the two children. He says uh, he modified, and to see whether those modifications really are there in those children and to do some analysis uh, of whether there are other modifications. He says he has done uh, these analyses himself, but I think having it done independent of him uh, by people who don't have an interest in the outcome is really critically important. Dr. Carroll, as a final question, how excited are you for the future of humans, or would it be how concerned are you for the future of humans based on what we see happening here? I think there's some very exciting uh, legitimate uses uh, that have been outlined by various people. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is that there are there are patients and patients' families and uh, support groups that would really like to see any new technology uh, that really can be useful for them to be developed to the point where it can be used. And I think we need to take a look not just at uh, those of us who are healthy and, you know, our perspective on this, but also the perspective of patients and patients' families. And so I think... The prospects are bright, but we need to go quite slowly in making sure that as we try to help patients and families that we aren't uh, doing something that, um, that, that would set them back. Because from a medical perspective, it, it, it would be great to have those patients, those families, and, and some new treatments. Do we have to worry about one day some scientist making someone who has an 80-inch vertical or someone who can run the 100-meter in eight seconds, mm-hmm. or are we, uh, are we a few decades away from that? Uh, we're quite some distance from that. Uh, we don't know how to do it. The, the targets that people are working on are 
uh, simple genetic conditions where we know that a single gene is involved, we know exactly what the mutation is in the gene that causes the disease, and we can attack that directly. So in situations where there are multiple genes involved and we don't know how involved, uh, it's much more difficult to see how those modifications would ultimately be made. All right. Well, we'll leave that for the future. Congratulations on the work you have done at present and continued success. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate your interest. Dr. Dana Carroll, distinguished professor in the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Utah School of Medicine. So that's a breakdown of where we sit in terms of being able to manipulate things in human genetics. There are more and more things being found out every day, more and more techniques every day, but a lot of them still not necessarily approved in the United States by the FDA, or if we looked in Canada, we could say not approved by Health Canada. And that's the key, being able to prove that, okay, these are safe on humans. But at the same time, then you have the claim by a human who says, no, no, I, I kind of went past all that. I just, I just went in and did this. I just used CRISPR, clip, clip, got rid of what needed to be done away with, and here you go, two babies. So jumping ahead, jumping the queue. When you look at this, though, here becomes one of those big-picture questions. Phone lines are open, 519-643-2222. I'd love to get your thoughts on human genetics and gene editing. Obviously, there are some really positive things, and we got an email from Rob talking about that last hour because he is dealing with cancer right now, and there are a lot of positive things you can look at that can be used as treatments that make use of technologies, that make use of the research that is taking place in human genetics right now. But there are people who will say, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't know if we need a world like that. I remember hearing an interview with someone who was born with dwarfism. And they had said, you know, I don't know that I want to take away who I have become. And I thought that was a really profound statement. You have someone who was born with a genetic situation, was not going to grow to be the height of a larger percent of the percentage of the population. And yet this person is saying, you know what? I'm happy with who I am. And the condition that I have has made me who I am. So, no, don't be tinkering too much. Because once you start tinkering, it opens a lot of doors, doesn't it? If you could look at yourself right now and say, here's a thing that I would like to change. And obviously, and it was laid out by Dr. Carroll, sometimes the easiest time to change things is when you're dealing with an embryo that is one cell, and you can go in and change the DNA, and then every cell that is replicated after that is changed. If you have to find a way to do it after someone is full grown, that might be a little bit different. How interested would you be if you could do it, though? Would you want to make changes to yourself? Would you want to say, you know, my family has this, and if we could wipe that out, 
I'd be interested in doing that. Phone lines are open, 519-643-2222. Would you be interested in that? Or do you think, no, we're, we're messing around way too much? We'll take a break and come back with your thoughts on this. Phone lines are open, 519-643-2222. You can email mike at 980cfpl.ca or you can tweet me at Stubbs980. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. The first line in Ferris Bueller's day off is life happens pretty fast. Well, that holds true no matter what you're looking into. There were times when we had horses and carriages and somebody brought out the car and it was declared, oh, the world is going to be a much more dangerous place. This is awful. Now we rely on our vehicles. Now we look back to when U.S. President Bill Clinton proclaimed We have finished with the human genome. We've coded it. We know exactly what's happening. And I don't know if you heard the story last hour, but since then, reports have come out saying, yeah, they were competing with a private lab. They had to make that announcement. It actually took them three more years to actually finish doing it. They were about 75% done when he made that announcement. But in order to get ahead of the private lab, you had to say something. If you had the ability to make a change, so that you could change yourself now, or you could change something in your family's lineage, would you want to do it? Because that's a question that we're very close to being asked. You have the ability to do it. Now, again, they don't know side effects, and maybe the most unnerving thing that Dr. Dana Carroll said in our conversation with him was that we have these scissors, and they're really good scissors. They just don't always cut exactly in the right place. We're not dealing with cutting out articles here. We're not cutting up construction paper. We're cutting genetic material. 519-643-2222. Would you be interested in doing something if you could? And we're not even, let's pretend you have all the money in the world. Cost is not a factor. Would you want to do it? 519-643-2222. 519-643-2222. Email mike at 980cfpl.ca or you can tweet me at stubs980. James, would you do it? Uh, first of all, I just want to say one thing off topic. Uh, I saw a person on Oxford whose wheel had flown off, so if you've put on winter tires, make sure you get them torqued again. Mm. Um, second thing is we have to think about the fact that as this becomes more certain and the benefits become more obvious that it would be almost immoral not to do it. Uh, There's actually a movie about it called Gattaca. I think it's Jude Law and Ethan Hawke. And Ethan Hawke's character is born out of, uh, not in under lab conditions, right? So he's born naturally. And uh, Jude Law becomes disabled. And Ethan Hawke wants to go on a space mission. So he has to steal uh, or Jude Law helps him steal his own identity and become an astronaut. Uh, it's a really good movie, actually, called Gattaca. But also, if we think about this, once we get all of these diseases out, I mean, you won't have to do this anymore, maybe. Uh, we can increase the longevity of life. And, and like you said, it's passed down from parent to child. We can get rid of these diseases. Yeah, and I am all for that. The only issue I worry about is everything looks great and then humans get involved. 
and I worry about where this would go when it gets into the wrong hands. It's kind of like that superpower. You know, you look and you say, oh, wow, look at it. this superpower is fantastic. As long as it doesn't fall into the wrong hands and in movies and in comic books, always falls into the wrong hands. There might be potential for that to happen, but the enormous benefits for humanity, for billions of people, it can't be ignored. And and just having a, a child in the future that has a potential for heart disease is going to be an extreme uh, issue, and people will will probably think look down on that and and think it's so simple. Why couldn't you have removed this problem from your child? What were you thinking? Yeah, that, that will be out there and it'll be out there for people who can afford it. It'll be out. It'll, it'll create a real, a real different society. I think James, thanks so much for the thoughts. Thank you. 519-643-2222. Would you be interested as James says, how can you not? How can you look at having some of the diseases that we have now? And if we were able to isolate it to just that, you're able to isolate just diseases and say, we can eradicate these. That's, that's an easy one. That's a real easy one. At least it should be. But then how far do you go? What do we consider a disease? What do we consider a disorder? What sorts of things go beyond that even? Because that's when you start to say, and, and I was really encouraged actually to hear Dr. Carroll tell us that we don't know how to make somebody jump 80 inches in the air. Because that's not just one thing. If you are to look at a gene that has the, I guess, the, the probability of you getting Huntington's, then that's one gene. And they can isolate that, and that's, that's one situation. When you're talking about making someone stronger, faster, bigger, whatever, that's different. And there's way more to it that goes into that. So that at least is encouraging. So maybe we get to now deal with situations that can look at diseases. And again, if you don't jump the queue, if you don't circumvent the system, you've got a lot of good research being done And if it goes through the proper channels and you make sure it's safe, everybody should be okay. It's when people start jumping the queue. And that's where that money stuff becomes involved. Because people will get desperate. There was an interesting story about a guy, I think he's in Germany. And his wife at 30 was diagnosed with lung cancer. And he's got a lot of money. And he has been able to use... Whatever laboratory he was able to be involved with and has been able to get her a treatment and two years later, she has not passed away. And they're looking at that as, as being a real positive. Last word on this goes to Anne at 519-643-2222. Anne, how do you feel about this? Um, hi, Mike. I just want to tell you, um, I was born with a congenital heart disease. I had uh, basically a hole in my heart that required... Um, at four years of age to have open heart surgery. I was also born a redhead, and I have had to deal, like, with these genetic (laughs) difficulties. I was teased. I had a scar that went from the bottom of my uh, chin to down to my belly button, and I had to live with that every day. But you know what? It made me stronger because everyone else teased me for red hair and a scar. 
but it made me stronger person. And I love that you have called because that's so much a part of the argument that you don't so, want people who are just vanilla. You, you no, don't want, no, hey, and, well, here's, you know you what? Know. I was born with what I was born with, and it has made me who I am. I don't think we should be messing with this stuff. Thank you for that, and thanks for the call. Thank you. Okay, thank Take you. Take care. Bye. See, that's the perfect end to this because you're not just dealing with what a person has. You're dealing with who a person is, who they become. And that's a whole new part of this that you can't put into science right now. We have news coming up with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. This is the 29th anniversary of something that we shouldn't have to recognize using the word anniversary. The massacre at Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal. And it is something that, again, we talk about each and every year, yet the numbers do not change enough. The numbers that we see, and we're going to talk more about this when we look at a new study that has come out from Western University and Guelph University. The numbers are staggering. Let me give you those ones right now. When you look at cases of domestic homicide involving 476 victims in Canada that are just contained in 2010 to 2015, and when you look at them in relation to vulnerable populations, so indigenous populations, immigrant and refugee populations, northern populations or rural or remote, or when you factor in children who are killed in the context of domestic violence, you have 418 cases in Canada. This is in Canada. So the numbers are not changing enough. Tonight, we have the opportunity to take part in the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. There is an event taking place, and joining us to tell us all about that is Shelley Yo. Shelley, thanks so much for joining us on London Live. Oh, thank you. Shelley, tell us where and when and, and what's happening, please. So we have an annual vigil at Victoria Park at the Women's Monument there, which is pretty close to the corner of uh, Richmond and Central. Um, you, you'll see people there. Uh, we'll have candles um, for folks to light. Um, and it starts at 5.30. It is outside. Uh, it's a somber event. Um, and it is an event where people find a sense of community as well. So it's a safe place to be, to um, to remember, and to uh, to be around folks who um, they might feel safe around. We do. Uh, we have two speakers, uh, Indigenous men, who are speaking uh, tonight, um, and um, and we'll have a couple of other folks, and we'll be acknowledging. The 48 women and some of their children who have been murdered this past year in Ontario alone. Do the speakers begin at about 5.30? Should we be there yeah. a little bit before 5.30? Yeah, a little bit before 5.30. It's, you know, I know it's cold out, but we do, it is a quick event. We're not there for much more than 20 or 30 minutes. Um, and yeah, so to be there a little bit, uh, and it moves fairly quickly. 
We're talking with Shelley Yo about the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women and the vigil that will be held at the Women's Monument in Victoria Park starting at 5.30 tonight. Shelley, you mentioned numbers in Ontario, and we keep looking and seeing numbers when we want to see numbers going away. What can you tell us about Ontario right now? So even across Canada, I'll just speak to across Canada for a minute, um, probably at least one woman and, and sometimes her children as well are murdered every other day in Canada uh, by an intimate partner, uh, by a previous intimate partner, by somebody that the woman knows um, and uh, because she's a woman. In Ontario, it's close to, it's about 56 to 58 percent of the murders in Canada are happening right here in Ontario. And again, you already mentioned that um, uh, Indigenous women and their children are most vulnerable and um, uh, represent highly represented in those numbers. Well, it's something that, again, we need to really pay attention to and not just look at this as, oh, well, what anniversary is this of this particular event? So tonight, Mm -hmm. if you could go and take part in the vigil, it's for the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. It begins at 5.30 at the Women's Monument in Victoria Park. Anything else that you would like to add, Shelley? Uh, No, if you're not able to go, there have been other uh, events across the city. And just to remember that um, until the violence ends, we need to continue to be vigilant, that we need to ensure that our communities are safe. I know that um, there's an initiative right now called Safe Cities, where people can go online, women can go online, and they can pinpoint um, the areas in the city where they're not feeling safe. Um, It's uh, an initiative with Anova in the city of London. Um, uh, there are lots of things that we can be doing every day uh, to help to keep uh, people safe in our community, to keep families safe, just knowing who your neighbours are, uh, reaching out to folks, um, and being mindful of uh, you know what's happening to people around you. Asking to feel safe should not be a lot to ask for. It Shelley, thanks so much for the time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. That is Shelley Yo. And again, tonight, 5.30, the Women's Monument in Victoria Park. There will be a candlelight vigil. The candles will be provided. And, of course, this will be in memory of the women who lost their lives 29 years ago. Up next, we want to look into some of those numbers because something new came out. And it is based on work done from a social science and humanities research council We have some involvement from Western University. We have involvement from the University of Guelph. And we'll get to those numbers. And Shelley pointed them out. I mean, why do we even still have numbers? But the numbers across the country are pretty staggering. When you consider the percentage of murder that takes place in Canada, we're pretty lucky. We don't have high murder rates. We don't have the murder rates of some other countries. But when you look involving domestic violence and domestic homicide, how much the numbers jump up. It is staggering. We'll talk about it next on London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. There is a new report on domestic violence, and it is out from the Canadian Domestic Homicide Prevention Initiative with vulnerable populations. And 
As we're talking about domestic violence, as we just mentioned, there is a vigil tonight at 530 in Victoria Park at the Women's Monument. We mentioned that numbers still exist. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to look at just how large those numbers are. And joining us right now is someone who has been able to examine those numbers, make some sense of those numbers. Annalise Stratman is currently the project manager for the Canadian Domestic Homicide Prevention Initiative with Vulnerable Populations, and she joins us. Annalise, how are you? Hello. Hello. Let's look at at kind of what jumped out when you began to put these numbers together. Were you ready for the numbers that you saw? Well, we're never ready for the horrific numbers that um, come out with this. Um, But we do know from Statistics Canada that there range between 60 and 75 women that that are killed because of spousal homicide in Canada each year. Um, In in this report and in this project, we are looking at domestic homicides in a much broader way than perhaps Statistics Canada does. And so we're looking at current and past relationships, including dating relationships, Etc. And in the period from 2010 to 2015, um, based on court and media records alone, we discovered that 479 people had been killed in the context of um, domestic relationships, and and many of those including um, a history of domestic violence. Now, we hear the term that is in this particular study that deals with vulnerable populations. Are all of those victims from what you would consider to be vulnerable populations? Well, um, certainly they were all vulnerable for some reason because their lives ended. Um, but the vulnerable populations that we are working, we are focusing on in this study include indigenous, immigrant, and refugee populations, those living in rural, remote, and northern areas, and children um, who have been killed in the context of domestic violence. And the reason we believe that they're um, more vulnerable is is um, because of so many factors. Um, in rural, remote, and, and northern areas, um, we have um, a lack of availability or accessibility to services. It's an ongoing problem. Immigrant and refugee populations, although we can't paint them all with a broad brush and they come from everywhere around the world, many may have um, experienced pre-migration trauma and and um, that may have an impact as they have difficulty adjusting to life here in Canada, but for some that isn't the case. And um, But um, other there might be other contextual factors that are causing um, problems that lead to violence, um, such as you know difficulty with employment, um, housing, language issues, dif- difficulty accessing services as well. And in Indigenous people, we know um, beyond the the horrible history of colonialism and residential schools, um, that has the biggest impact on. Um, what is going on in their lives today. So that, so, so I think that that plays a huge role. We're talking with Annalise Stratman, Project Manager for the Canadian Domestic Homicide Prevention Initiative with Vulnerable Populations. Annalise, if we break down the numbers a little bit more, if you look at, at how many of these victims are female, what do you find? Well, 79% of the victims for, of the adult victims were female. Um, so it's a horrific number and a stark reminder that, you know, um, 29 years ago today, one person killed 14 women because they were women. And when we look at 
the people who wind up being accused in the cases of domestic homicide, the people who are charged, when we look at the breakdown between men and women there, what do you find? Um, the, the, the reverse, of course. So pre- predominantly um, the victims are, are women and predominantly the, the accused are male. Okay. And in terms of age range, do, do we have an age range on this? We do. And I mean, it, it happens across the lifespan, um, even in the grouping of children that were killed in, in the context of domestic homicide. Um, 37 children were killed um, in in that time frame, um, ranging from infants less than a year old up to 13 years of age. But um, and we also have some young people that are killed um, in, in dating violence relationships in their adolescent years. And then right across the, the lifespan into their 90s. So um, nobody seems to be immune, but the average age of um, this, uh, of what we found for between 2010 and 2015 was 39 years. One of the things that came out of the study was that the most common initial charge laid was second-degree murder. Should we, should we take away anything from that in your mind? Um, for for me, I'm not really sure how how we um, we grapple with that, um, and and um, that's an issue before the courts as to and the justice system as to how to deal with that. Um, the other thing we can uh, know from this too, though, is is that while in the in overall the most common. Um, a method of of um, homicide was stabbing followed by shooting. But then, when we looked at rural and remote and northern areas, it was it, the reverse. Um, so most women were and then were killed um, by shooting and then by stabbing. It was also important to note. Um, so gun control is something we need to be thinking about or access to weapons, um, especially when we're aware of domestic violence relationships. But also um, an, a number of um, people who c- committed the initial homicide committed suicide and often um, with the use of a firearm as well. We're talking with Annalee Stradman and Annalee is the project manager for the Canadian Domestic Homicide Prevention Initiative with Vulnerable Populations. We're talking about a study that is called One is Too Many, Trends and Patterns in Domestic Homicides in Canada that were between 2010 and 2015. Annalie, as a final question, what do you hope is done with the statistics that you have helped to present and the information you've helped to gather? So these statistics, um, we're going to continue to gather them. Um, It's for a national homicide database to look at trends um, among these po- uh, the populations that we've identified that are particularly vulnerable, but uh, amongst all people as well, so that we can learn from what's been happening and find some trends that we might be able to address um, through risk assessment, risk management, and safety planning practices to um, hopefully prevent um, another domestic homicide from occurring. So this is one part of um, a large research study across Canada. Um, Other parts of it include um, interviews with uh, um, service providers to learn about some of the things they're doing um, that are helping people. Um, But we're also going to be interviewing in coming months um, uh, women who have survived um, horrific domestic violence. And how did you survive it? What did you do that um, has led you to a safe place? But also family members of um, women who have been killed to find out what went wrong and what can we do to change that. Annalie, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you.
That is Annalise Stratman. She's the project manager for the Canadian Domestic Homicide Prevention Initiative. And the numbers are staggering. And the problem is the numbers don't change. It's like so many other things. You know, one day we'll be talking about drunk driving. Those numbers don't change. These ones are not changing. How come? That's the question you're left with, and there is no good answer. There's no reason for domestic abuse. None. So, when we look at 418 cases of domestic homicide in a period that runs between 2010 and 2015 in Canada, that should be staggering. Let's take a break. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Oh, happy holidays before we close out. How about this? In Delaware, in the United States, there aren't a lot of reasons to look and say, hey, what's Delaware doing these days? This is one of them. And Delaware's not even the only one. The city of Fort Worth is doing it. I don't know if there are a lot of reasons to look at Fort Worth. But here's what's happening. You know how everybody is having packages delivered because they're shopping online. I don't know. As your kids get older, do they start buying their own gifts? Because we've had that experience in our household. Our kids are actually saving us the difficulty of buying them gifts by saying, oh, I'm going to order this. Is that okay? It'll come in on your credit card and you can put it in my stocking. Okay, sure. That works. Just eliminate the list. Why, Why do we even need to make out a list? But What they're doing in Fort Worth, and apparently in Delaware too, is they are baiting packages. Because you know when packages get delivered, you have porch pirates who go and steal them? Well, police are contacting people and saying, hey, can we put this baited package down? And when a porch pirate, somebody who goes to the porch, picks up a package and runs away, takes it, has a little beacon in it. And then the police find them, and they usually find a whole lot of stuff with that person. Huh? There are reasons to look at Delaware and look at Fort Worth, Texas. It's warmer in Fort Worth, Texas, for one thing. Thanks to Matt McInnes for his help today. Thank you to our guests today, Pete Morgan and Jess Morgan, Dr. Dana Carroll and Annalise Stratman. London Live brought to you by our friends at Windmar, your restoration specialist. News is next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.